the whole philosophy really, <laughs> just being completely honest with you here, is a way of intellectually shoring up some very, very almost childlike insights, which <laughs> arrive for me when I feel most deeply awake. So, and those insights, you know, here's, here's one way of putting those insights. Those insights are, yeah, fundamentally, when I enter this profound awakened state, it feels to me that despite everything, life is good. Death is safe. And what really matters is love. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And uh, where are we in time again, exactly? <laughs> Somewhere in 2018, which means we're on the precipice of a fundamental and far-reaching reconsideration of what it means to be human or even to be at all. I love this show for the platform it offers people to contribute their own understanding to the elephant in a room of blind men this situation is for us, to lend their own perspectives to the anticipated archaeological record this show will become. And one of the more unique and interesting angles I've encountered on this comes from British philosopher and author Tim Freak, someone I met as a fellow presenter at the Global Eclipse Gathering in Oregon last August, which, by the way, you can uh, hear my talk. I gave it that on the evolution of time, very relevant to today's conversation in the uh, Patreon feed. Tim is the author of like 80 million books, actually it's like 35 books, uh, a religious scholar, he's a, a very bright, witty, and grounded guy with a wonderful sense of humor and, and a joviality about him. And I guess that really makes sense when you understand where he's coming from and how he sees some of the more vexing problems of philosophy resolved in a kind of integrated information theory this notion that heaven is an evolutionary emergence and that the soul-making work of the human life is akin to the business of a caterpillar preparing itself for transformation into a higher dimensionality. I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I don't want to spoil the way that Tim so eloquently unfolds this in the episode. But suffice it to say, he's got a very fun perspective on time, life, mind, soul, creativity, and death. So it is my great pleasure to invite him onto this show and share a little slice of this guy and his applied awakening with you. But first, I want to thank everyone who's been rating and reviewing this show wherever you happen to be catching this podcast. Most of you, I think, are listening on Apple Podcasts, but I know that there are folks out there who have reviewed the show on Stitcher and uh, subscribed on Spotify. Whatever your platform is, we live in an age where algorithms determine who gets exposed to new content and who just gets to hang out in their filter bubble forever. And if it were not for you, then this show's navel-gazing would be recursive and self-referential completely unavailable to anyone outside the existing conversation 
like the withdrawn strange stranger of Timothy Morton's hyper objects. But maybe we're getting, again, ahead of ourselves here. The point is that I'm deeply grateful for everything that all of you have done to share this show with your friends and with people that you don't even know. I also want to give a special shout out to this week's new Patreon supporters, Elizabeth Johnson, Candyman, and Johnny Mischief. All of you are now exalted members of the Decentralized Intelligence Agency over at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Members of the global conspiracy to facilitate important conversations about how we can be good ancestors. And the beneficiaries of my ridiculous living avalanche of multimedia creativity, which this week also includes my recent live electroacoustic guitar performance at Flowstorm 2018 here in Texas. You can hear some of the music from that in the background right now. Even if you only sign up for a month, you have access to exclusive and unreleased episodes. The upcoming exclusives for Patreon supporters include the four-hour conversation I had with psychonautic living legend The Tea Fairy, one of this show's core inspirations and a dear friend. Thank you all so much for listening. Next week's episode is with University of Edinburgh vertebrate paleontologist Steve Brusati about his fantastic new book The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. Finally, we get a dinosaur episode on the show, for Christ's sakes. But now, please give it up for the warm, the wonderful, the insightful Tim Freak. Welcome to Future Fossils, Tim Freak. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. So your work and the reason that I that you caught my ear at the the global eclipse gathering in August was that you have found a way to articulate spirituality in the 21st century in light of evolutionary theory and in light of of the you know the system sciences and the science of emergent complexity and you've brought it all together with an emphasis on story and the ontology of story and how our experience of the world emerges from that so i was just like yes yes this is so exciting to hear to hear someone articulated as eloquently as you and i would love to just give you an opportunity before we dive into stuff to frame your ideas and how you came to them for folks uh right okay um so i love that phrase the ontology of story that's great so it kind of ends with story um, so if I frame it in the biggest sense, I mean, my my own uh, personal exploration has been around uh, awakening and spirituality and writing crazy number of books and ending up wanting to frame a new spirituality for our times, because I realized that all the people that I admired most is that's what they'd done. And so it felt like that's that's the aspiration is to play some role in doing that. And the great challenge I think we face, well, I face, it's, it's not just we, I feel it personally, is I want to understand my life. And this strange 
thing that happens every day which is full of so many contradictions so it is both has a cause and effect level which physics really helps me understand and it has a uh, another level which story helps me understand and somehow those fit together a world of magic and synchronicity and meaning and which spirituality addresses and a different level of what reality is which uh science generally has concentrated on and done so very very well with how the hell can we bring these two together and 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 probably the biggest challenge just to set it right from the start is around death because uh, most of the people that i come across who are trying to synthesize a spiritual and scientific understanding just avoid death (laughs) they don't even mention it it's like don't even don't mention that because we we can never we'll never manage that. Uh, whereas my feeling is well, uh, I'm, you know, I've worked with people who's dying. A lot of my friends have died. My parents both died. I've been around a lot of death, and the distinct intuition that I have is that death is actually not uh, the end of our existence, uh, and that's a hell of a challenge to understand in the light of the world painted by science. So that's a kind of background as to why the challenge really which is to to reinterpret esoteric philosophy in a new way for today and the the essential idea which i'll just again do really really broadly is really simple in, in essence which is everything has evolved so that rather than the spiritual um position which is generally there's a pre-existent spiritual reality from which we've fallen and the cosmos is some great fuck up and we're stuck in it and we we need to get out because god has made a mistake or we've fallen into an illusion or some there's been a some cosmic error from which spirituality can help us recover and my feeling is that's a very negative view of life and i doesn't coincide with my own experience or my own intuitions rather i want i want to explore the idea that everything has evolved except that process of evolution hasn't stopped with biology it just it wasn't 10 billion years of the evolution of the physical universe and then three billion years of biological evolution and then this funny thing we call psyche happening which is a byproduct of that but rather than this thing we call psyche which is the greek for soul psyche this evolution that soul is the latest thing that's evolved and that rather than it being a, a kind of byproduct of biology it is a whole domain just as the biological domain has come into existence from the physical domain and is a whole nother level of emergent reality, the soul domain is, a, is another level of emergent reality. And with that comes the things which spirituality explores. With that comes uh, the immortality of the soul. And I can go into why I think they can have, um, but also a story. The, the thing which characterizes the psyche, which is the imagination, which characterizes this thing, so, which we're all experiencing all the time, is it's framed by concepts and narrative. And that that level of reality isn't a commentary on, rea- on the real thing, which is biology and physics. It is the most emergent level of evolutionary reality. So that story, rather than being something which again, often in spiritual terms, is regarded as something to get away from, is actually something which shapes the very experience of life in a very profound way. And we need to understand it and give it the level of ontological importance that it actually deserves. Yeah, you know, I read, uh, I was introduced to some of this a few years ago through the writing of of William Irwin Thompson and his book Coming Into Being, Artifacts and Texts in the Evolution of Consciousness. And he makes a, a case with an excerpt from a scientific publication and he shows this paragraph on dolphin brains 
And the, in the paragraph, he points out, he just enumerates the 40-something metaphors that are deployed in the articulation of this supposedly concrete objective reality. And he makes, and he's like, look, even in our, our most rigorous attempts at a view from nowhere, you know, we're still putting our story of reality together as a story. Like it's still, it's still extracted from this undifferentiated raw experience. And then it's webbed together through this, you know, mycelium of symbols. And then, you know, what we end up with is actually in some way, we, it's like we can't have objective reality. We can't have rational, logical thought without like a mythic underpinning that narrative structure re resides in even more elementary metaphorical associations. And so like, I would say that's like complementary. it sounds like to what you're saying that that like, in yes. addition to being emergent, it is also in some way, at least for us, it's now like primary or we, we really it's come hear. it's come because because for me it's come from the universe it's not it's not separate from it it is the nature of the universe on its most emergent level that what's happened with imagination is that we uh we have we have been okay let, let, let me just before i make that point let me just jump to another big idea central to this philosophy which i call emergent spirituality yeah which is about time um because it's and again, we're going to move very fast, but I, I'm sure that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, to me, the central thing about the nature of reality of the, of the cosmos is time. Again, it's dismissed, I think, out of hand by a lot of spirituality and some physics mistakenly. Because it seems that in, when I look at what it presents itself, fundamentally, it is a flow. It's a process. The universe is not made of things. It's, made of a, it's a process. And the process is made of time. So that what we have is this unfolding of experience one after the other. And the idea which I is everything is predicated on in the philosophy that I've been exploring is that we have a, the wrong metaphor for time, that time doesn't pass, which is what we say in English. It passes like, like a train. It's passed. But rather time accumulates. Mm. and that there is more past now than there was when we started this conversation and when we first met in uh, at the eclipse and, and on and on. In fact, there's 13.8 billion years of accumulated past, and the past hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't left us. It hasn't passed. It is actually present because everything that's ever happened is, 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 is implicitly in this moment. So implicit in this moment for you and I is our first meeting, for instance. Implicit in this moment was that book you read, the information. So that came up. Implicit is the learning to speak English, the development of the human body. That everything that's ever happened is implicit in this moment. So the past has not gone. It's accumulated. It's information which is constantly accumulating. And each moment is the meeting of everything that ha has been and everything that could be. So... Just jumping back to your previous point, and we may want to return to time, but the therefore the, the nature of the imagination of soul, of psyche, is made of the past, and it's been accumulating. So what you're pointing to is that there is a foundational level to soul, which is full of archetypes and primal forms of the imagination, which which structure narrative, which is what Jung was onto and and many other people, so that 
that everything it's it's in you know it's what um, we see in the very structures of language for instance that that um, Noam Chomsky and people like that have pointed out so there's the accumulation of the past on a physical level which gives us the habits of nature the way that you know gravity and all the things that nature habitually does there's the habits of biology which is the accumulated past which give us genetics and well everything that forms biological and then there's the habits of soul which is all these primal archetypes and things which govern narrative and language and all of that and they're all happening at the same time <laughs> on that note i I want to run this past you and, and see where you where you stand with it because it, to me it seems coming from evolutionary biology and and developmental psychology and sitting with this you know contemplating the nature of time for you know a decade not long <laughs> enough long. long enough to decide to start a podcast about this the sense that I get is that what we call emergent order or emergent complexity or the you know the emergent features of the cosmos are like implicit in the present like the future's emergent is implicit now in the same way that the tree is implicit in the seed and that what we're witnessing is a sort of that as the as the way as you talk about it like as the past accumulates that it sort of draws or gathers information through like from a distributed kind of environmental sense and then through these metabolisms and through these dissipative structures and that it's it's an, a reorganizing or a repatterning but that in some sense everything is conserved and then we're just watching something that latent become something active that that the, yes. the future is curled up right in in all of this now Ooh, curled up nice yes and as well, I want to emphasize the creative nature of that process so that it's not like back to the train track model of time. You know, there's the past. It's gone. There's the future. It's going to be this because it's all determined. It feels like the very nature of emergence. And, you know, people like um, Kaufman and biologists built like that have really pointed to the creativity in the universe is that it seems to me that. The, every moment is the is the meeting of the possible, the ground of being, the potentiality and everything that has been. But what this next moment can be, it's limited. It must contain everything that's happened before. So every moment I've ever experienced, I'm guessing it's the same for you, has never been the same moment that's happened before. And it's always contained everything that's ever happened. Well, how would you know if it was the same moment? Like, how would you know if you had the same moment well, twice? I mean, what, be... what was so interesting is actually by definition, I think you can't have the same moment. Because if you have the same moment twice, it would have contained the previous moment. Therefore, it would be a different moment. <laughs> so so just in the nature of time you cut it's impossible to even conceive of the same moment it's a bit like the idea of going back in time it's actually impossible to conceive because even if you did if we suddenly found ourselves back at the beginning of this conversation we would have had the conversation and then gone back so it would be a different experience of going back because it would contain everything that happened after it so the very the very nature of time means that you can only be conceived of as accumulating so that the, then we can see that, that, that I've completely lost what we were talking about. Oh, <laughs> the, uh, the future. Where is the future curled up in the present? In. Yes. So, so given that, um, thank you. So given that, it seems to me that the potentialities that can manifest are limited by the past. Therefore, those are latent. 
but there's a whole spectrum of them. Like I could have not forgotten what I was going to say and I didn't. And I forgot and asked you that was latent in the moment. And that's what happened. Um, I could have just rode on and, you know, all of the so that it's not like it's fixed. It's there are particular possibilities it, 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 in terms of the, the great future, infinite possibilities in, in terms of this next moment. There's particular possibilities, but still great. Lots of them on different levels. But, you know, the possibilities for these keys are limited. They're going to fall. They're just going to keep falling. That's what they're going to do. They're going to keep. But the possibility in soul as to what you and I can say, that's the level of creativity now has emerged whereby we could, you know, really, we could say lots of different things. Not anything because that's impossible, but it's huge range. But So that's the latency that I would see in what you're talking about. Does that fit with what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah I think that to twist it a little and get a, di a slightly different angle on it because I have all these other questions for you but I want to run this past you too because one of the things that I haven't really devoted a ton of time to talking about on the show in the uh, god like 60 episodes I've recorded so far is wow. that in 2008 I had a DMT trip I had this experience of exp of time as a kind of handshake between all possible futures and all possible pasts and that the moment that we experience is the kind of like the still point at the intersection of colliding infinities and that the histories that we experience are sort of drawn through you talk about that that sort of like the keys are always going to fall that they're drawn through this channel of possibility or probability into particular futures but that those are not exactly latent or non-existent but it's also not fixed that the difference i guess here from what i'm used to hearing conventionally is that it's not merely that the future isn't fixed but also that while our relative past is fixed within the horizon that it's actually equally drawn out of this field of possibility as the future to some extent and that you know that we get into this weird horizontal situation with any attempt at arriving at a consensus about our experience you know the, the conflicting histories and you know conflicting evidence and i don't know i don't i just i don't it know it feels to me like that the, the what has come into form mm -hmm. has come into form so that once a potentiality is realized it's realized forever that, that, that you can see a primal paradox or a polarity between the potentiality and the realization of potentialities. And so once something has realized itself, has become realized, that's realized, that's, that's happened. Now, how you understand that, how you look back on that, how it can be perceived by different, you know, as the evolutionary process has gone through, what has happened has been seen in different ways by different evolutionary forms of life and then by different forms of intelligence. And you can look back on all of that and we're reperceiving it now. Um, but we're reperceiving something which is not changeable. The perception of it is massively changeable and it changes in the perception of it. That's the evolutionary process, a bit like the potentiality for the rainbow was there before there was eyes but there was no rainbow and then there was eyes and there was and then suddenly the rainbow emerged so in the same way we can look back and by our bringing our consciousness to it it becomes something it wasn't before but it's still what it was before 
and fixed in that way. So the past in itself, it feels like has formed. So it's it's Pythagorean in this sense. Pythagoras had this whole thing about the formed and the formless, the limited and the limitless. And in a way, I think I'm probably echoing that, that there is a something which is limited, which has been formed, and that's the past. And there's something limitless, which is what it's all arising within and what's constantly creative. giving. So it's And, and the past is fundamentally something repetitive and the potential is something fundamentally creative and that those two are interacting all the time. That's what time is, the interaction of those two. Uh, and because of the creativity, we can reperceive the past, but we just did start this conversation when we did. That was a fact. What we think about it and how we remember it and, and our memories, of course, can be completely deceptive. I'm not saying memory. I'm saying the mm. past itself. So I want to hammer one more thing on this before moving on, which is that I had Carrie Welch on the show recently as she is a, uh, a philosopher of time specifically. Uh And she's writing in her work that she believes she adheres to a kind of an eternalist model, but one that sees that accounts for free will and for emergence and for choice by making that a sort of retro causal phenomenon. She's kind of suggesting that what we experience, the reason that we experience the past as fixed and the future as open or like loose in its weave, let's say, like there's still a pattern there, you know, Um, is because she believes that there are waves of influence arriving in the present from the future that are not experienced by us as causal, but as chosen. And that that that, that is or like the randomness, incredibly convoluted. I know. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I mean, because it, it, I mean, I, I'm a I'm yeah. I love. I want things to be as simple as possible, but no simpler, as the great man said. <laughs> the, the the you know, but I do want things to be as simple as possible. Which is so. I, I just look. At, I spend an awful lot of time just looking at the moment. I so so yeah. If you want to, if you want to make an eternalist presumption, then you're going to end up with something as convoluted as that. It seems to me. So don't make it. So just actually look, look, this moment is there's a flow of time, a time stream happening. Implicit in this time stream is everything that's been before, and yet it is always new. It is the realization of a new possibility. That seems to be what the moment is. The past meets the possible. You don't, and and there's something inherently satisfying, I feel, to the human soul in that the cosmos, the evolution process is creative. And the mere fact that it has led to such outrageous emergence I think points to that of these different levels, which you you know, if you took with mean, the lovely line from Brian Swim, I I just love it, the the evolutionary philosopher, where he says uh, about evolution, you know, what we've learned essentially is if you take hydrogen and you wait long enough, it learns to sing opera, and I just love that because it's just like wow, how mad is that? You know, but it's true. So that is how creative the universe is. Now, if you want to have some idea that it's all happened already or there's – I don't know why you'd want to go there because creativity seems fundamental to its nature. And that creativity has seemed to be increasing all the time. As the deeper the levels of emergence have become, the more creative the universe has become and the quicker that creativity has moved until you reach soul, which is inherently incredibly creative, which we're experiencing now in this conversation, which is um, – which is actually that creativity in process 
Now, it could be that I was just destined to say these words because that's just the causality, but it really doesn't feel like that. And that feels I'd, I'd need a very persuasive argument to let, make me let go of that. Because what it looks like to me is the universe has manifested the, the creativity, the possible, on, on deeper and deeper levels until it's reached us. And even with us, I know from my own experience, I can have days where that creativity is very limited and I'm very stuck in my past, and days when it's just like alive and super creative, where I feel very much in touch with the possible. And so that seems a simpler and more obvious description of reality as I experience it. When you talk about psyche as an emergent, then, soul as an emergent, and in a way, this makes sense because it seems like so much, if you look at like neuroanatomically, so much of what we associate with religious experience is a, a relatively new feature of the, the human brain. And so much of what we take as you know, uniquely human is, is the little cream on top of the, <laughs> this, this thing. Um, and I, I guess that's a very stark juxtaposition against so much of this uh, this evolutionary rhetoric when applied to the coevolution of humans and technology, where it seems like you get people like Kevin Kelly saying more or less the same thing that you're saying in the big story in terms of, you know, these various emergent layers of, of evolutionary process. But he sees the technium, like the sum total of human technology as like a single thing and he includes that as the seventh kingdom of life and he sees techni as the emergent layer so it seems like it seems like <laughs> both of these are in some sense like, i think that's kind of sweet but a bit ridiculous well yeah <laughs> that's yeah. the honest truth it's like it's like look technology which i love i mean i think it's incredible this is a product of the imagination this is this is created and facilitating imagination we live in the imagination the imagination is the big thing. Technology is brilliant, but compared to the imagination, it is nothing. You know, it's just beginning. One day, maybe it will be a whole realm, but it's just, just, you know, it's way, you know, I don't, I, 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 you know, it just seems way, way, way too early to be saying these thoughts. I know human beings are always prone to it. Whatever our latest thing is, it's it. But it's like, no, it's not. We're it. We, and, and, and it's coming from us. We still haven't got to terms with what we are let alone mm. our, mere, our creations. And what we are above all else is this experience you and I are having right now of a non-physical domain. In the physical domain, there's a body in this room and a body in that room, and I'm making funny noises. And, but what's happening in this non-physical domain of mind or imagination or psyche or whatever you call that is that there's meaning, that we're, we're, we're connecting in this non-material realm all the time through the material realm but we're connecting in this non-material realm now for me the way that we need to understand that needs to fundamentally well, first of all we need to acknowledge it and give it the respect which certainly spirituality generally does i mean if you talk to people who've experienced ayahuasca and things like that there's all you know that you know there's a whole domain there's a there's a whole universe to be explored in soul which is quite different to this it, it echoes it because it's full of images, but it's different. So the question is, is that merely a byproduct of biology or should it be treated as, an, it, as a self? Uh, a, 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 it's, it comes from the biology, but it's not dependent on it. So the way that I would come at that, and again, I'm going to move quickly, would be 
one of the great things that physics has led to is this idea that the world as we perceive it is not the underlying reality. It's simply as we perceive it. The underlying reality is better understood as information, which we are interpreting in this way. And that gives a great way of understanding the evolutionary process as the, the evolution of information on different levels. So you've got the evolution of physical information, and then you've got a different domain, which is the evolution of biological information. And those are not the same. And, and one of the great ways and simple ways that I like to see that is to think, well, here's my body. It looks like it's made of matter, but it's not because the matter in my body is completely different than it was 10 years ago. So it's not the matter, is it? It's what? It's the information through which each day I, you know, matter passes through me and my body continues because it's information on the biological level. Now, what I'm suggesting is that there's then information on the soul level, which is non-physical information, uh, which is a, which is a, a separate domain. And that, that the, these different domains have emerged through the evolutionary process, but they are not the more emergent domains are in a sense greater. They, they contain the, the domains before them so that we can't reduce the body to physics and we can't reduce the soul to biology. And that that information has actually reached a place where it can exist independently of the body, which is what happens after death. Mm. Um, so we've evolved an afterlife, you're arguing. We, it, Exactly. Beautiful. That's exactly it. You know, the way I like to put it, just because it's a bit, you know, cheeky, is to say, look, I think heaven has evolved. The, the, the domain which we experience as the collective imagination, which we go into, and you, you hear people's descriptions of near-death experience or read their descriptions through history. And I've, I've written a book years ago on different views of the afterlife, which was, it was what struck me was these all sound like dreams. Which one? Because which book was this? Because you, you have like 30-some. <laughs> Yeah, this book is called Heaven, um, uh, and it's about just views of the afterlife. Long years ago, this was, but what you get is this dreamlike quality, and with near-death experiences, very dreamlike. But I think it's because that's what it is. It's a collective. It's a world of images, and we're experiencing it right now. And you can go deep in it in meditation, or by doing shamanic power plants, or, and you go deep into it at death, and it's a world of information on a different level. So that the immortality of the soul has evolved as a continuation of the of the uh, emergent and evolutionary universe, and you can see it if you go it just. Let me, yeah, yeah. But you can actually, if you look at the history of what people have said about death, you could, it's almost like you can watch it evolving. So you have got the Greeks where it's all shades and shadows, and some of the ancient Jewish texts also. By the time you reach the great religions, there are great hordes of Buddhas and saints and. And then today you've got everything, you know, vast cities and anything you can imagine. So mm. you can actually see the, the, the collective imagination kind of taking shape. And it's gone from something which just echoes life, the drinking halls of Valhalla, for instance, through to like today where it's just these epic visions of, you know, anything you like. And I suspect it's been the same with our experience of shamanic states and power plants and things like that. The vocabulary of the soul has evolved in that way as well. So heaven's heaven may then be going through a similar kind of social evolution. I think it's the most emergent. It's the imagination, and it's the, this is the latest thing to it's the, to arrive. You know, we've gone from simple matter to something which isn't made of matter. Information on a non-material level, where something is made of images, and the images have come from the sensual experience of this level, but have now taken on a 
a life of their own. And we're experiencing that life of their own right now, which is why we can communicate like this by passing images and ideas to each other. I want to come back to this, but in discussing information, and I, I love that I have the opportunity to just completely geek out with you in this way. Uh, <laughs> Me too, by the way. <laughs> thank you. In, in discussing information as primary, as like the exterior dimension of things, I have been deeply influenced, I would say, over the years by the writings of Ken Wilber. And Ken puts perspectives as primary, information as an exterior perspective, and then there's like an an experiential or interiority there's a component to it that it would be imprecise to call mind or consciousness but he calls back to alfred north whitehead and calls it prehension and so i you know i wonder what does it help this conversation to add that and i don't think this is what you're saying that it's it's not that this emergent layer of imagination and soul is the emergence of consciousness or of experience, but that it's no. of a particular kind of information pattern with a correlated in interior experience. And that yes. looking back that we would find sort of like prototypical forms of this in earlier life forms. Is that, yes. is that true? What you've just said there was exactly what I was going to say to you in response to what you'd said. Exactly that. So, so I would say um, what I'm saying I think is in, in quite a lot of harmony with um, Ken. I, by my nature, like to keep things simpler than Ken does. He's great at complexity. <laughs> I'm, I'm not much good at that. I like to see the simple patterns underneath things. So for me, the whole universe is an evolving time stream and that it is individuating. So it's, it's, a, it's one stream made up of many currents, if you like, many individual times of which you and I are, are examples. Uh, and so is everything else. And what I see is that it, it feels to me that every single time stream has an objective and a subjective nature. And the objective nature is information. And the subjective nature is how it is reading the information of the rest of the universe. So I'm reading the, re the information as the rest of the universe like this. And this is how a human Tim Freak body reads information <laughs> and you're reading the information which makes my, up my body for instance so that everything has by its very nature is a, is the potentiality is arising as objective and subjective because it, it is relating to the universe around it and that happens and i think this is what you were saying that happens right from the very most primitive forms so that you can even you can see that a um, simple chemical reactions they're reading they're reading the universe uh, electrochemically and they'll respond to this in one way and this in another way they're still discriminating the universe around them now it'd be hard to call that experience or say uh, you know it's, it, in the way that we mean experience but it is nevertheless subjective discrimination so it's being subjectively discriminated and it is subjectively discriminating that will evolve into all sorts of more complicated levels on biology and particularly it will evolve into sensuality at which point we can start using words like consciousness and experience so that obviously once you reach a certain level, you've got proto-consciousness. So you've got this, you've got pre-conscious discrimination becoming conscious discrimination so that there is no objective reality. There is rather objective information subjectively perceived. The two are always coming together. There's not mm. an objective reality which finally develops subjectivity. It is subjectivity and objectivity go right back 
into one of the fundamental qualities of the emergent universe, which is individuation. The individuation is the process of increasing objectivity and subjectivity. So normally when we look at evolution, people look at purely the objective form of evolution. Mm. But I think we also, in the same moment, need to look at the subjective process of evolution as that's evolved. Then to tie it into our previous bit of the conversation, and I, and you said this, at the, in, I think, as well, is that so normally people assume that the soul, this thing we're experiencing right now, is the subjective aspect of the brain. I'm suggesting something quite different to that. I'm suggesting that the subjective aspect of the brain is sensuality. That's what the level we're experiencing right now of this uh, is this sensual experience of the world. That's body. And that soul has developed its, uh, its information on a different level. and subject, So it's, it's objectively on a different level and subjectively on a different level. And it's non-material. Which is why when the body dies, for instance, the sensuality will stop. Because the, the sensuality is of the body. It's of a different level of emergence. That's the discriminate. The body is discriminating the world around me sensually. And then over the top of that, imagination is discriminating it conceptually. And that's a different level of both subjective and objective uh, existence. So that, and that, so that, I, I, that's a, that would be a, yeah, I'll leave it. At, I'll leave it at that and see what you make of it. All right. Yeah. So I wouldn't have been at the Eclipse Festival if it weren't for Bruce Damer, who I know you met while yeah. you were out there. And Bruce has yeah. been working on origins of life research for some time. And listening to all of this stuff, you know, I think about if if you're gonna if you're putting the soul on a layer that's sort of distinct from the interiority of the body, then that calls to mind that transition or that boundary between geology and biology and how poorly we understand that and how poorly, because like right now, like I'm lucky enough to be in this three-way conversation with Bruce and Ken Wilbur by over email talking about the issues of like trying to adapt Ken's work and and Bruce's work to each other somewhat you know and specifically this is something i've been i've been wanting to do since i was in college look at this issue of how does the inclusion of interiority add to our understanding of the emergence of life from what we're calling non-life you know prebiotic systems the question that comes up though is that like when i when i brought these questions to and forgive me, this is like kind of a roundabout way of asking this question, but like when I, when I brought these questions to one of my biology advisors in school and he said, well, the, the, the problem is that you can't have, and we know now that this isn't true, but just for the sake of making it, making the case that we can't have the inheritance of a pattern of information until life exists, until there's a molecular substrate. And I was like, well, that doesn't seem right. It seems that there's, there is an inheritance of information from one physical state to the next. And so there is, there is some sense in which there is a, like a pre-chemical or, or pre-organic sense of evolutionary inheritance just in the way that things are laying about you know, in their physical organization, the informational pattern of the dressing of a set, you know? Something is, there's a similar question coming up here for me, which is what 
you know, it, it seems as fuzzy around the post-biological as it does around the pre-biological, this issue of, if we're going to talk about it as evolution, then we're talking about the mutation of information and the selection of those mutations within some sort of matrix of selection, some sort of environment that is for which the soul, for which the, the afterlife is a beneficial adaptation. So I'm curious to hear you riff on that. This, like, what, what is, where, like, what, if it evolved, it evolved as a sort of chance mutation that turned out to be, well, the thing, good I mean, for the, something, the, right? Yeah, I mean, I think these are really these are incredible questions, and and it is our understanding is just beginning, if if at all, really. Uh, fascinating what you're doing with Bruce and Ken. I had the pleasure of being at the Science and Non-Duality Conference with with Bruce again. Uh, just recently and um he very kindly read my book soul story three times he said and uh, and mentioned it in his talk which was very nice he's such a charmer um i i had a real a really really enjoyed being being with bruce and talking about our mutual connections with with um terence mckenna and all of that stuff so um that was fun and uh and ken is is a, a great philosopher so i'm fascinated with what you're doing with those two look my sense is that evolution itself has evolved because people generally in the public mind, I think, associate evolution with some form of Darwinian natural selection. But obviously, there was no Darwinian natural selection with the evolution of the cosmos. You know, the, the physical universe did not happen through genetic mutation and natural selection. There was that was impossible. So it seems to me we know that whatever was driving the creative process of the evolving universe for the first 10 billion years shifted gear when it moved into biology and it manifested in a new way. And what it did, it feels to me, was it just turned up the level of process of individuation with the invention of death. It was just brilliant. I mean, by developing life, it developed death. And by doing that, it developed a mechanism whereby it could speciate. (laughs) The individuating process could really take off very fast by the some form of the process of adaptation and natural selection or whatever so that through that you've got this development of species and that has and how that happened and that transition you know these are massive questions i can't answer (laughs) But, but but um but i can see that it happened what I would want to suggest is, and again, I, I'm not, I'm sure I can, I can't account for how and when or anything like that. But it seems to me that what has happened is that this, a similar jump took place with the development of the imagination. That once you come out of biology through the development of the evolution of sensation, so that it's no longer an experience I'm having where I can see your face. Now I can close my eyes and imagine your face. That that's a huge jump. This creation of a of an image of something which I'm not actually sensually experiencing. And that happened at a certain point. And then with the, as that takes shape, then I think we have information on this other level. And then it, once it can exist independently, at least for a while, we can increase the process of individuation. Because for biology, you and I as individuals really don't count. What it's interested in is species. So it just wants us to live, fuck, reproduce and die and the more we can do that better because then as individuals we're of little count but once we reach the level of of soul that is just not true 
suddenly the universe has individuated on a whole nother level. What's interesting about you is not simply that you have a unique body, although you do, because generically it's pretty much like mine. But in terms of soul, you, our individuation is turned up. And what's obviously painful about the thought that death could just be the end and all, is that all of that would be a complete waste. It's like, well, there was Tim and Michael, and then there weren't, and that was all gone and didn't count for anything. My own feeling is that it really isn't all gone, and it does count for a lot, because we've individuated now to maintain that individuality, because it's too, it's too precious. So once it's enabled to do that, then the information which is on a soul level can move in and out of what I think of as a symbiotic relationship with information on a biological level, which is a different way of just conceiving of metempsychosis or reincarnation, that you've got information on a, on a non-physical level, which is moving in and out of a symbiotic relationship with, with something on a different level, so that my body is in a sense different to me, actually. It is something I have a symbiotic relationship with temporarily, but actually what I am is, is on a level of soul, which is actually the teaching that has been deep within spirituality forever. The difference is I'm suggesting that that has happened through the evolutionary process, not by some fall into biology somehow or some something which doesn't make sense in the modern world. Yeah. So... This is fascinating because I feel like every time I, I open my mouth, it's like a callback to some other conversation I had with somebody. But that's how this works. That's how knowledge sure, is, is, that's, is that's constructed. That's the of our past. Right. So um, I was just talking to film critic John David Ebert about the new Blade Runner film. Have you seen Blade Runner 2049? And this, they talk a, a strange amount about the soul in this movie about a dystopian future. But it's, you know, it's because... You know, they're, they're really getting at this, that Pinocchio issue of what does, what constitutes a real boy? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it seems like we're, you know, we work things out through cinema, you know, and like through these like massive uh, cultural products that we can all experience together. And, and we, we digest these things through a film like Blade Runner 2049. And I'm, and I'm curious what you see going on, how you reflect on the way that these themes are bubbling up right now in Hollywood and in other major media forms as what seems to me to be like a response to these questions that we're now having to seriously grapple as we start engineering life you know, technologically and building, you know, that we start getting to this point where maybe within a hundred years we can print a human being, you know? So like, what's going on here? <laughs> Just such a great sentence, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, look, I, my, my sense is that the, in the intellectual mainstream and only in the mainstream, but in, or in the, but the, you know, that, that the particular area of culture, We've seen a collapse of the old spiritual models, and rightly so, because they don't hold up anymore. And we have yet to find a new rational spirituality to replace that, which is what I'm trying to do. And that's left us with fundamentally a deterministic objectivist science, so that what really exists is the object, the subject is a byproduct of the object, and even when it's denied, it's fundamentally non-emergent. It's reductionist, which is, for me, the opposite of emergentism. Emergentism is simply the greater cannot be explained away by the lesser because it's greater. And reductionism is the opposite. It's just we can explain the greater by reducing it. So 
because of that, we have this idea that the imagination, the soul, is, it, it really has been soul-destroying, literally, because it's, it's merely a byproduct of a lesser level of reality. And that's led us, of course, now with modern technology, we've, we're creating this incredible technology which can do these amazing things. So the natural side effect of that is a lot of people are assuming that if you could just build a complex enough machine, it would therefore have a soul or it would be conscious or it may have an imagination. Now, I am not at all convinced that that is the truth. Now, it might be that it can generate soul, but there's no evidence that I can see as yet that's remotely true. What I can see is we can generate the semblance from the outside as if it does. And that's already in existence. It's on my phone. I mean, I love talking to Siri. She's great. You know, she's, she's full, cleverer than I am. And that's there already. But what I don't see is that there's no information on the soul level happening from my phone. Mm. And that's the big jump. Once you get that this information is on a different level, then it's the question is, are we getting any closer to generating information on soul level from complex information on a physical level? And my response is at the moment, no, no we haven't. We haven't well, even started. In talking about metapsychosis, then, like in talking about this notion that the that what we may have is a, a symbiotic attachment of yep. a, a non-physical or metaphysical, I don't know how you want to, information pattern to the body, you know, which yep. I see is depicted in Alex Gray's awesome painting, the seraphic transport docking on the third eye, which he wow. painted while I think he was down in Amazon on ayahuasca or something, but he had that, that image of the angel landing on the guy's head, you know, which is very much in tune with that sort of... Uh, catholic sense of being penetrated by christ and and this whole you know esoteric sense of the the symmetry of orifices above and below the heart you know that you're receiving the divine fluid or whatever so i mean it sounds like your emergent soul still sort of creates this space within which we can talk about the content of emanationist philosophies like Vedanta that saw soul as as primary and like descending into form and it's in light of that that I wonder if we can't create bodies whether they're organic or non-organic that are basically sexy enough to welcome to invite to host a soul can we ensoul an a really iPhone? interesting possibility yes I don't I mean I, I have no idea obviously how could I but in principle, from my own particular standpoint right now, I don't see why that's not possible because I don't see why we can't generate that level of – well, maybe it doesn't even have to be organic. I don't know. Who knows is the answer, I think. Why not? The key thing for me would be, look, that what you said, that there's a movement up to a higher level or more emergent level of information, which we experience as subjectively and objectively a soul, and that's moving in and out of a relationship with this. And that is why there is a sense of, of fall as well, and why you do get that sense that most people have of when you wake up, particularly of, I remember something before my life. I remember something deeper. And I think that's because that's probably right. It seems like all of this ties into a very old human idea, which is that you can in spirit or in soul a sacred tool or instrument. Like, you know, the idea of like the Excalibur is like an ensouled sword. It's it's been given an identity. And that goes back to like the African griots ensouling their drums and their choras. I mean, but those are very simple items. 
you know, if you look at it from like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and you know, their their story of incarnation is that you, the soul, actually sees two attractive people having sex, and you're like, oh, I want to be that person that's going to be born through that, and it doesn't. Just, yeah. just hang on to that thing you said about the sword there, because that's yeah. fascinating, and I, I've never thought that, because there is an assumption with that idea, say the Excalibur idea, that it's ensouled in the sense that it's just a sword, but it now has a mythic sensibility because you see it in a certain way. It is an individuated but, identity. But the, but the idea that it could actually be ensouled, that by placing that identity on it, it could therefore, or a place. I live in Glastonbury, which is full of mythic imagery. And I, so it's, I wonder whether there is a sense in which, and maybe this could happen with plants too, which is what's happened with ayahuasca, or that the, the actually retrospectively, as it were, we can ensoul things by giving it that imaginal quality, which it then takes on. I, I mean, again, I have no idea if that's true or possible, but it's a very interesting possible, you know, thought. Because like Rudolf Steiner talks about this. He talks about exalting the vegetable and mineral worlds through our human awareness that you know he talks about the flowers sort of all reaching out to be noticed by us because in our noticing of them we grant them an identity like to choose to paint a flower you know sort of like uplifts it it makes that flower a specific flower and not just a flower there's something about uh like the velveteen yeah, rabbit just- and like how love gives something a soul here. And they, they do that in Blade Runner, too. There's a very Velveteen Rabbit kind of vibe going on in that film. Yeah, <laughs> I just think about dogs, how they... I mean, I've, it always strikes me when I, I don't have a dog, but my friends do, and, oh, I love them. And, and, and you, because one of the things you, is you see how much they want to be around human consciousness. You know, they're, they're very different to us, and yet they're really attracted to it. And I think there's a general quality, which you're pointing to, maybe, where we are attracted towards the more emergent. I mean, I love being around wise people. I love it. You know, I have since I was a little boy. It's just, I love that. It's like, oh, you know, I'd travel huge distances to be with people who have got a state of consciousness which I aspire to and so forth. So there's an attraction somehow. So whether whether that's similar, whether that could reach right down into how we see plants or even objects is intriguing. Yeah. Mm. We're coming up on an hour here, and I want to be respectful of your time. But what we really haven't done here, which is unsurprising on some level, is directly address the issue of death in this. Right. We've talked all the way around it. You know, where are you with this? Do you think that there is that death persists in the afterlife, or do you? I mean, we t- we've been talking about an immortal soul. I mean, how do you how do you understand I, change and transformation in this new I, platform? I think there's continual accumulation of time. I think that, you know, you are, you are the Big Bang arrived at you. I'm the Big Bang arrived at me. There is an, un, you know, we are the, all of that past, but we individuate it. And what's marked out us is that, that we, we are time streams that have arrived as soul streams. And that, that we're information primarily, we are information now on that level. And that information doesn't die. Just like, you know, death and, and life and death come together. They're a biological phenomena. Once, once it's individuated to a point where it is now an individual emergent stream of subjective and objective qualities. And that, that therefore, um, death is just not an issue. It's, it doesn't even, it's not, not the right word to be used in that context. But that we, are, we have come from and are permanently linked to all of the less emergent levels. So we move into and out of relationships with them. 
so the the and a metaphor and one needs to be careful with these metaphors but i'll give it to you because it's a quick way of getting it that i i sometimes use is this is this if i when i wrote my book i wrote it on my computer so all the information for my book was on my computer it looked like if my computer were to die if i drop a coffee on it all of that information would go but of course the information wasn't just on my computer it was also on the cloud I could interact with it through my computer. I could, you know, it was was there. It was all linked into my computer, but it was also on the cloud. So when the when the computer gone, the information's still there. So my sense is that's what's happening for us right now. The information is clearly, you know, you can. It's linked to my brain, to my biology. If you affect my biology, friends of mine bleeds on the brain and you know lost all sorts of faculties and all sorts. Then that will happen because it's linked in a bit like the computer, but it also exists on another level which is non-material, so that it exists independently as well. And that that means it persists and can come into a relationship. You know, literally, I can download it onto another computer. And that is a metaphor for, I think, how, this, how we can see the information on the biological and, 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 and soul level. So that what, what the, the question around death becomes, for me, very easy to frame at last by going, what I'm saying to myself when I'm going, do what happens at death, I'm saying... This experience I'm having right now of two domains, the domain of sensation and the domain of imagination. When the body falls to bits and the sensation ceases, does the, does the experience of imagination cease also? And my suggestion is, no, it doesn't cease. In fact, it becomes more and more vivid. Just like when you dream at night and you lose sensation, you enter a much more vivid world or you take ayahuasca and you go off into the soul dimension you this one becomes can become very vague because you're off somewhere else so that that when this goes this comes to life and that we experience that and it's it's also the accumulation of time experience unfolding except it's an imaginal reality and we exist in that and then at a certain point we're unable to sustain that level of consciousness and we find ourselves drawn back into a symbiotic relationship with a less emergent level. And we experience the continuing process of individuation. Because what I'm suggesting really is that the process we're in is, is, is for us is that we are literally forming ourselves. Because we're made of everything we've ever been, we form ourselves as souls. We're doing it right now. We're always doing it. We have the choice how we do it, which is amazing. We've chosen to do it in this way, which I've really enjoyed, for instance. So we, we are made of everything we've ever experienced and ever been. And therefore, that continuing process of individuation leads us to greater and greater objective and subjective uh, emergence, which means we're becoming more and more conscious, and which is why, for me, the, 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 the real thing which is happening at the end of this process is that through this, souls are becoming conscious of the ground of all being, and that's spiritual awakening that you become so individuated so that you are sufficiently conscious that you can reflect back and go, so essentially, what am I? What's before this process of evolution? What's the thing which is witnessing all of this? Where is all this coming from? And when you do that, you, you wake up to the ground of being, and there's one of it. And so suddenly, the oneness from which everything has emerged has become conscious of itself through me, through this separate thing. And the more that Tim continues this process of evolution, the more the ground of being becomes conscious of itself through the individual soul. And that then becomes a way of seeing the whole scope of evolution in a very broad sense 
as an evolution from unconscious potentiality, unconscious oneness, formlessness, through increased individuation and form becoming more and more conscious until we enter a state of conscious oneness through the individual form. Through the most individuated thing. Exactly. Right? That's, that's exactly. the weird, that's the Pierre Terre de Chardin thing. That the, that's it. The more that's collective it. we become, the more individual we become. Exactly. And that's the key. Well, I'd say it the other way around. Yeah. The more individual we become, the more that we can understand the oneness, the collective. So that the overall journey then, in, in a very schematic way, is unconscious oneness, conscious separateness, to conscious oneness. And the conscious oneness is a both-and state. It's conscious through the, indivi the, the individuation. And that's an ongoing process. Well, damn. Tim, this has been a total pleasure. I, I really appreciate you being on the show. Where, where can people find your work, read your many, many books, learn more about your... You host seminars and stuff in person, too. I do. So, so they can find me. I've got a funny name, you see. So you can find me easily on the internet. Just look up Tim Freak. F-R-E-K-E. -E. It's an old West Country English name. Uh, Timfreak.com. And there's loads of videos and books and freebies and all that stuff. And I'm available too. I'm not a distant figure. I'm not that successful. I'm I can still <laughs> at the stage where I can talk to people. It's lovely. So, you know, you can contact me. Um, and Facebook, of course. And there's a forum on Facebook. And all of that's on my website. And I also do these things, yeah, because to me, what I'm interested in is a new form of spirituality so it's not just um this is, we've been talking with my philosopher's hat on but a lot of what i do is about directly pointing to that thing we talked on at the end oh how can i experience this profound oneness which i experience as love it's in huge love and then how can i bring that love into the world so the whole philosophy really <laughs> i'll just be being completely honest with you here is a way of intellectually shoring up some very, very almost childlike insights which <laughs> arrive, arrive for me when I feel most deeply awake. So, and those insights, my, you know, here's, here's one way of putting those insights. My, those insights are, yeah, fundamentally, when I enter this profound awakened state, it feels to me that despite everything, life is good, <laughs> death is safe, and what really matters is love. And, and that's it. So, but in order to justify things that simple, I feel like I need this whole <laughs> intellectual structure to hold it up and give it the gravitas that it deserves. One writer to another, I, I sympathize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to do it. You know, that's, you know, one must play out one's nature. And, yeah. you know, and, the, and so, you know, we, as you said, nerd it out. Um, and so, look, yeah, the other, if people are particularly interested in the philosophy aspect, then the book to look for is Soul Story which is my latest. And if they're interested in the practical awakening, my one before that, Deep Awake, is probably the one to look at. That's wonderful. Tim Freak, it's been a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it's been great. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. So stick around and have a most excellent eon.